0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. We tend to think of our world as increasingly intangible. I hold in my hand a device exponentially more powerful than the 32 kilogram supercomputer that guided NASA's Apollo 11 mission, ready to latch onto a wireless connection and link me to vast online data that can satisfy my curiosity on any matter. But rarely does that curiosity turn to the physical object in my hand. My guest today is Ed Conway, a prize-winning journalist, broadcaster, and currently Sky News economics and data editor. He seeks to redirect our focus back to those physical objects essential to the ethereal world in his new book, Material World. Welcome to The Bunker, Ed Conway. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Ed, why did you feel the book needed to be written? it is quite an old fashioned concept in many ways
1: yeah it is i i think i think it's a lot of it is just reminding us of why this stuff matters because i think we have kind of forgotten about some of the the physical underpinnings of our our, our world some of us at least and i you know it's through no fault of our own it, the vast majority of us in in the uk and in the us and most developed economies work in the services sector we are providing services to people sometimes it's ideas sometimes it's physical services but these are not you know, sectors where we actually get stuff out of the ground, make it. We use stuff. And I think the more people work in those those kind of intangible fields, the more we we get this impression that the intangible is kind of all that matters, that the internet, for instance, is a kind of ethereal thing, that you just need a good idea, and that's going to change the world. And to some extent, some of these things are true. But the internet is not an ethereal thing. It is a physical thing. Product. It is literally fiber optic cables going around the world. Um only the very last kind of few meters of transport for data is happening in the ethereal, in the kind yeah, of intangible yeah. world. So we forget about that stuff. And so part of the the journey for me was just thinking, well, how does this stuff actually get made? You know, where does it begin in the ground? I just wanted to satisfy my curiosity on that. And then that kind of led me down various different Tunnels into quite fascinating things. You know, I was—I like literally to, tunnels. They're quite literally <laughs> tunnels. Yeah, I mean, know, yeah, tunnels to get sand out of the ground, and you know, that's the sand that we then later turn into fiber optic cables because fiber optic cables are mostly made of glass. And trying to reconnect with that world turned out to be like strangely, kind of almost spiritually rewarding because I suddenly felt more in contact with the world that I was inhabiting. And so, what? my objective was was just to try to remind ourselves of the stuff around us and how it is fashioned and and when you're touching the things in your your environment trying to kind of explain where they began in the ground the extraordinary processes because part of this is a story of wonder the extraordinary processes we humans do to turn them from one thing into another whether it's silicon chips or you know the battery that goes into your phone or your or your new car these are the wonders, the the greatest achievements of humankind. and so part of it was just trying to to revel in that a little bit.
0: Mm. As I read the book, and it is a it's a cracking read, actually, quite action packed and 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 Thank quite you. funny at times. Um, Who'd have not thought? At all the, I know, <laughs> for an economist, um, not at all the dry treatise one might apprehend. I think, I, but I, I did sense that alarm in you at how blind people are not as a judgment, because it, it's an alarm at how blind you were at the start yeah. of the process, about this dependence of our own aligned existence to stuff that comes out of the ground. So why did you choose those six materials? I mean, as a foodie, I was delighted by the inclusion of salt and, and the detailed <laughs> section on brining. Um, yeah. but, but why choose something on the face of it, commonplace and easily extractable?
1: Well, okay, so so there's salt. I'll I'll do the quick list. There's sand, salt, uh, copper, iron, um, oil, and lithium, and and it's not an exhaustive list. I mean that there are many other things you might you might otherwise choose. But through those different materials, a they include the stuff that we extract most of to get out of the ground. So that's pretty straightforward. But b you could kind of tell a lot of the story of the world around us through those materials. So you can tell it through sand because you've got things like concrete you can tell it through sand because you've got things like silicon chips as well uh, although technically speaking it's not type of sand but the definition mm. of sand whatever it is silicon you can you can tell it through iron for obvious reasons that you know the, the the buildings we inhabit the hospitals we go to the high-speed rail that we travel on that is made of iron it's made of steel and we make stuff out of iron if it's not made of iron or steel. It's made with steel, um, a copper. That's our electrified world. And by the way, iron. The story of iron also allows you to tell the story of the industrial revolution, the beginning of coal. So us starting to mm. use fossil mm. fuels to make these things, all the way through to copper. So you've got the electrical revolution there. And I think, like of all the metals, maybe all the materials in the world, copper might well be the most underrated, just because we don't tend to see it much. But that is the sinews, that is the wires of, of, of our world. Uh, and then through to oil. It's easy to dismiss oil, particularly given that we're trying to use less of it these days. But frankly, you know, we'd all be starving if it weren't for oil, Mm. given that Mm. half the world's population is still reliant on fertilizers, which are themselves made out of oil or rather gas. And then finally through to lithium. So the point of all of that was there's there's an arc that takes you from the kind of prehistoric era through to the modern era. And a lot of that along the way, and I'm sure we can talk about that, involves these amazing and sometimes quite scary energy transitions where we're we're kind of using different types of energy. But back to salt, I mean, I started off thinking salt, okay. I mean, like I, I, get, I thought about various different materials and, and tried to ponder. Because part of the difficulty of doing this, Alex, was like it wasn't like there was a pre-existing list I could... I could you know no. turn to that was going to be okay? Well, here are the things that civilization depends on. I, I weirdly, and I'm quite data focused, there is no data that says here is the stuff we rely on the most to keep civilization going because in metrics like GDP, a lot of this stuff is really quite low value. You know, salt is not really, you know, it's not worth mm. much, mm. frankly, as we all know. So, that didn't give you a kind of yardstick as to well. If this wasn't around, if it was hard to come by, then what would happen to civilization? So I just spent a long time thinking about it. And salt was fascinating partly because it has this extraordinary history. And getting hold of salt used to be very difficult. Salt was, for a long period, one of the most valuable substances in the world. And those who controlled salt were people who were able to, sometimes in a despotic way, control empires. Uh, and a lot of that that particular kind of chapter or that set of chapters is kind of about the history of people using salt, taxing salt, um, the story of Indian independence, which is tied up also as well with salt. But it's not just salt as something that we sprinkle on our food. It's salt as the bedrock for so much of our chemicals sectors, yes, the industrial and I, processes. Yes, it's an industrial process of salts. And 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 again, this this wowed me. Really, we we these days in the UK in particular, but also in the US and, and many parts of Europe, we still mine enormous amounts of salt. Often, we're not sending people down and under the ground with pickaxes because we're mining it through something called solution mining. You you pump water down, and up comes this salty brine. Um, But most of that brine doesn't get turned into salt for sprinkling or even salt that goes into your dishwasher. It gets turned into chemicals. And those chemicals, again, none of these things are generally speaking household names, but things like soda ash and caustic soda, without those chemicals, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. You can't make paper. Uh, without caustic soda Mm -hmm. that's the stuff that's kind of melting down that's kind of disintegrating a lot of the wood pulp and turning that into paper Um, you can't have glass without soda ash you can't make lithium iron batteries without taking lithium and reacting it with something like caustic soda or soda ash so these these chemicals are to some extent the bedrock of our lives yet no one kind of pays them much attention and they all begin with salt and so even today we are tracing out old salt roots. And the fact I love about this is that if you look at a country like the UK, and look at where the chemicals and pharmaceuticals, uh, factories and plants are, they are generally located on top of the salt. They are literally located on top (laughs) of salt deposits, even today. In the US as well, Dow Chemicals is located directly above a massive deposit of salt. And so we think, again, that we have... You know, wrenched ourselves away from this material existence. It's still there. It's still there, and it, it affects our lives so much because about ninety percent of the pharmaceuticals we use still rely, one way or another, on chemicals that come from salt.
0: Can I take you on a, on a slightly uh, economically geeky tangent? Because you mentioned absolutely um, price, and you mentioned you know how salt used to be used to control empires effectively. Um, Given that these materials are so essential that demand for them would be pretty inelastic to price changes, is it a mystery that there aren't more cartels like OPEC? Or is the fact that we allow OPEC to exist the anomaly? You know, and given they're so essential to security.
1: Yeah. no. The funny thing actually is while (laughs) researching all these random materials, you do keep coming across cartels. So they don't always last all that long. But there have been many copper cartels and attempts to control the copper market through, particularly in the early era of copper, when it was the first age of electrification was just coming. Yeah. Thomas Edison really panicked for a long period about copper prices and how much copper he was going to be able to get. And there was a period where it looked like the electrical age wouldn't be able to begin because there wasn't enough copper. And actually, it turns out that the main thing that enabled us to have the biggest industrial revolution we've ever had, or one of the main things that enabled it to happen, wasn't just Edison's brain power, it was also the fact that we got a lot better at getting copper out of the ground and we changed our refining processes. It's the kind of you know the hidden story of of the industrial revolution that I'd never certainly read about before. But there are cartels all the way through. Even right now today, there's there's obviously OPEC that's the most famous of all. But for instance, if you want to get potash, you have to deal with the potash cartel. So there's still a potash cartel, which mostly is I think Canada is still a part of it, but it's mostly places like kind of Belarus and Russia and there are other mm, potash mm. deposits there. So there are these strange things. But for the most part, because we've just got so much better over the years at extracting this stuff, and because you know, none of these materials I'm talking about are exactly scarce. There's there's things like cobalt, which are very, very concentrated in one place, or niobium. The vast majority of the world's niobium is in a few mines in Brazil. It's kind of extraordinary. And you need niobium for making certain types of steel. Um but because most of this stuff is is pretty prevalent and we've got much better over the years. Again, another untold story of human ingenuity. We've got much better over the years at getting it out of the ground. There are we should say, and I'm, I hope we'll come to this some big environmental question marks about about that, some consequences. But because we got better, it's been difficult for cartels to maintain their their hold. Energy, I think, is just that exception because, well, a lot of the world's energy is, in particular, in oil, is is in those places. And again, one of the interesting things we're living through now is that when you look back at the twentieth century, how much of that history came down to where the oil was, it came down to petrostates, it came down to what was happening in the Middle East. So much of kind of military history has come down to that. Now, we might be now moving towards an era where it's not just petrostates, but electrostates. Mm -hmm. So the countries where you find lithium, the countries where you find copper, the countries where you find materials you need to go in your batteries, they are very different to those oil producing countries. And whether that means in future we might have a cartel for lithium or a cartel for cobalt these things i don't know opec was a relatively late arrival in the kind of you know the long history of of oil production but cartels have always they've come and gone in all of these commodities and it's it's not a given that they're not going to come back again
0: The other thing that that comes through is the sort of tentacles that shoot out from each material into really quite unexpected directions. But maybe for me, because I'm a philistine, <laughs> um, maybe because I haven't studied this stuff enough, but I was blown away, you know, by by technological advances in the kinds and ways we make glass, really being quite directly linked to the vaccine that just rescued the world um tell our listeners a bit about that
1: yeah glass is another thing we kind of take for granted and understandably so because we've got so good at making glass Um, but even now we still rely on a particular type of glass borosilicate glass which is made from boron and 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 glass it's a particular recipe and actually one of the fascinating things through history has been that particularly in the 18th and 19th century people began experimenting with different types of glass. If you were a scientist, you know, whether it's Faraday or indeed Hook or any of the great scientists of that enlightenment era, you were also, it turned out, obsessed with glass. Every single one of them used to make their own glass recipes because they were making the vessels, for instance, within which they would do their experiments. There was this great uh, book written a few years ago. I think it's called The Glass Batherscape, And they went through the 20 most important scientific experiments in history and found out that I think of those 20, maybe 16, all relied one way or another on glass vessels in which to do the experiments. Anyway, that's just a long way of saying glass has always been really important in scientific endeavor. Even now, today... Um, we still rely on those borosilicate containers to send the vaccine uh, around the world. And, you know, there was a period during the pandemic when the vaccines were being developed, when there was a big question mark as to whether we were going to have enough of the glass vials in which yeah. to transport it. And we did. And and that's, you know, again, we don't, as journalists in particular, we don't tend to write about things when they go right. It's just the nature of the beast, Yes, uh, you,
0: you describe how basically whole... Factories pivoted towards making more of that particular glass, which is again something that we just didn't hear about at all because it was part of the logistics. Yeah, mm. we mined more sand. We got hold of more boron. We,
1: we, you know, these factories were making enormous amounts of, of of borosilicate glass, and that was part of the life support system for all of us. Really, we heard about the vaccine side because that's the most novel bit. We didn't hear about the glass, and that's fair enough. Both both mm. things mm. are interesting. But my point with the book has always just been, well, yeah, we, there's the, the interesting stuff we know about. But let's talk about the interesting stuff we weren't aware of because maybe it was right there beneath our noses, but we didn't pay it enough attention.
0: The, the part of me that is still a, a science fiction-obsessed teenager was quite delighted by deep-earth programs and deep-sea mining. Yeah. Um. How do they work? And and da- does that mean that we, we need no longer worry about running out of stuff near the surface, as it were?
1: Well, I mean, deep-sea mining, rightfully, everyone is very unsettled by it. I mean, the idea behind it is that there are particular minerals we're going to need in future and we're going to need in vast quantities things like cobalts things like nickel they're the stuff that go into your battery and right now the way that in the you know if we're going to need lots of electric cars the way that we get a lot of that cobalt and nickel is is not either environmentally or necessarily socially sound. So I talked about cobalt earlier, the vast majority of the reserves of cobalt are found in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The conditions there in many of the mines, not all of the mines, but in many of the mines, particularly the artisan mines, are terrible. And you have you know child miners, you have potential slavery there, you have terrible working conditions uh, for people. It's kind of medieval. So people are worried about that. They're worried about what's happening with nickel. A lot of the mines uh, that we get nickel out of in the world are in Indonesia. Um, the tailings, which is basically the waste product, are just dumped into rivers and into the sea. Again, people kind of wonder to themselves, why on earth are they doing that? Well, there is at least a pragmatic explanation, which is that this is a really size, normally with tailings, you put them into a dam. So you put this waste into a dam. It's yeah. a grisly, unpleasant place to be but this is the way that they tend to get things out of the ground. It's the reality that we are all, like it or not, signed up to. This is how stuff gets to us. The, the tailings dam at this copper mine I went to, Chukikamata in Chile, is bigger. This is just the waste product, the area where they store the waste product. It is bigger than the size of Manhattan, just for the just for piling up this waste product. Anyway, the tailings for for nickel are dumped into the sea in Indonesia. Why? Because they can't build the dams because it's too seismically active an area and so there are concerns about that. But even so, it's terrible. You know, it's it is just polluting the sea on a daily basis just to get nickel. So to, to go back to deep sea mining, part of the argument behind it is you can go down under the sea. There are these little things called polymetallic nodules, these tiny little potato sized lumps of rock basically that you find they're like pebbles on on the seabed, particularly in the Pacific, and you just scoop them up and these things have really high concentrations of nickel, of cobalt. There's also concentration, high concentrations of copper, which is, one again, one of the metals I, I look at, maybe far more copper than we appreciate. And the argument behind deep-sea mining, as I say, is that you can go down and you would have higher concentrations of ores. You wouldn't be reliant on the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, you wouldn't be reliant on child miners. You'd just be scooping this stuff off the bottom of the sea. Now, that's the positive side of it. The negative side is it's almost unlimited because we just don't know the environmental consequences of yeah. going down into there. We know so much less about the bottom of the ocean than we do, or indeed parts of the you know the the lower parts of the reaches of the ocean than we do about the land. And so the question that a lot of people are wrestling with, and it's a live discussion happening right now in various various institutions is whether we should be pushing down and doing deep sea mining. There's a UN organization which is kind of trying to draw up regulations for this. It's very controversial. But what's unsettling about this is that a lot of focus is on the bit in the high seas, okay? So that's anything off a few hundred miles off the coast of various different countries. But within that, it's called an economic exclusive economic zone, Um, within the territory, the the sea territory that countries have, there's nothing to stop them doing deep sea mining right now. And for Mm -hmm. all we know, China's already doing it. Japan's already experimenting with it. And so, yeah, we're, we're at the beginning now, because the technology of these undersea robotic machines has got so advanced. We are now at the point where deep sea mining could become and might indeed be happening right now. It could become a reality. And that, yeah, I find that unsettling. But it's unsettling not just because, because you know, we know the damage it could do, but because, like, we're all a part of this, aren't we? We need Because we stuff. don't
0: know the damage it can do, actually. Yes, that's why no, that's exactly. why it's unsettling. We're sort of playing lucky dip in ecosystems that we barely understand. Um, and you, you have highlighted... A lot of the worries, but I would say that the book is very optimistic in tone. That was my impression. That, if anything, it reads as if investigating the ingenuity with which we have got to here reinforced your faith that there are all sorts of solutions to all sorts of problems, and they will be found. What are the obstacles to to making those leaps? Do you think, if there are, is there a bunch of systemic stuff that stop us from progress? Getting to net zero, which is a goal that we have set ourselves,
1: and there's a wide consensus that we need to do this. Um, I think the obstacle is that it's just, it is just tougher than I think anyone appreciates. It's just a difficult, really, really difficult thing to do because you need to reimagine the whole bedrock of how we make stuff. You need to reimagine transit. You need to reimagine everything. And while... There's, there's many reasons for optimism. I'll come to them in a second. It's certainly true that the kind of timescale that we've set ourselves to do this is incredibly compressed. We've never shifted from one energy source to another as quickly as we're planning. And this is going back hundreds of years through all of those other energy transitions I mentioned, whether it's coal from wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to gas, we've never managed a transition as quickly as the one that we're setting ourselves the plan to do that now, you know, by 2050. We've just never done it. The added difficulty is, in going from various fossil fuels to green uh, sources of, of power and storage It's the key thing, we are actually shifting down the thermodynamic ladder. So previous transitions were all about going to more energy-dense fuel, so from uh, wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to gas. Each time you were becoming more efficient, you were squeezing more energy out of those different things that you were pulling out of the ground. In going from oil and gas and all of these other things to batteries, I know batteries aren't a source of energy, but they're what we store the energy in, and to going to wind turbines and all of these different things, we are shifting down, so it's becoming less easy. And we've just never done either of those two things before, done it as quickly and done it going in the wrong direction as it were. Of course, it's the right direction in environmental kind of terms, but it's the wrong direction in terms of the thermodynamics of it, and so that, like that, is really kind of unsettling again. And it's—I just don't think that has been explained clearly enough to all of us. And I, frankly, did the politicians who signed up to all of those net zero plans—did they have a clue about any of this stuff? No way. There's no way. And so, what the, the book seeks to do is just to kind of try and explain that in level-headed terms.
0: Ed Conway, thank you so much for telling this story. Material World is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work. For as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon, just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Every decently made object, from a house to a lamppost to a bridge, spoon or egg cup is not just a piece of stuff but a physical embodiment of human energy testimony to the magical ability of our species to take raw materials and turn them into things of use, value and beauty." Those are the words of Kevin MacLeod. The supplementary and vital question for the decades ahead is whether our species can turn that magical ability towards repairing the damage that our rapacious curiosity has left behind. And find a more balanced way to sustain our future thirst for progress. Our survival depends on it. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The bunker was written and presented by
1: Alexandre. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters
0: production.